0: our response to hello everybody we're going to start in first corinthians chapter five yeah first corinthians five and uh, today we're going to continue with our exploration of the temptations of the devil that we are seeking to avoid and preparing ourselves to avoid in the lord's prayer so where we are in the Lord's Prayer is the last petition. Uh, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so before we conclude this subject, which I think the petition speaks for itself, but um, we're going to look at a few of the temptations of Satan. We'll look at one more uh, tomorrow. There are so many that you know we could be at this for a long time. And uh, just to to get us praying, knowing the reason why we're... Uh, praying the Lord's Prayer, which we'll summarize when we're done. So today's going to be about temptation to isolation. Satan is always trying to get us to be isolated, whereas the Lord has commissioned us to be witnesses and to be uh, outgoing in relationships in the royal family of God and with people in the world, even unbelievers and our enemies. And uh, the flesh wants to isolate. So that's what we're going to look at today. So let's open up in prayer. Let's thank God for our time and for this subject to be fully, we're well not fully, but more educated in the, the truth of it. Uh, to learn how to pray is of uh, extreme importance. And so with our study, let's prepare ourselves through prayer. Our Father, thank you for um, what you have provided, which just so much. I <clears throat> thank you for the prayer and the ability to pray to you, and that's something that we overlook too much, and that uh, though we, we don't hear from you audibly and you are invisible, we know, Father, that you have given us prayer to stay in constant communication with you, Uh, or we should rather say consistent communication with you
1: uh,
0: throughout every day. You've given us the Lord's Prayer so that we know how to pray, and that from that framework you have given us uh, the prayers of others in the Scripture to guide us in a full and uh, complete prayer life before you, which is really a full and complete communication with you as we live in this world, as aliens of this world, while we are citizens of heaven. Today, Father, we look at isolation, which is a part of the flesh, flesh's desire to isolate from all, to not take risks, uh, to not get hurt, uh, to not uh, want to face the challenge that comes from being in the company of others, that you have called us to be witnesses of you as a light to the world, to others. And so, Father, we ask through your spirit that in this subject we are enlightened and that we find courage and that we overcome the fear that comes with um, the challenge that's here. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> so, uh, in, in terms of isolation, we could take the final petition of the Lord's Prayer, uh, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil, and conclude that we should get away from all temptation. If we're going to avoid all temptation you know, altogether, why not just get out of the world and you know leave society, isolate ourselves, go live in the wilderness, say, live by ourselves? In the first two centuries of the church, some had actually adopted this lifestyle. Uh, it was a life of mere sustenance, uh, sustenance level, meaning they ate and drank a bare minimum and lived in extreme asceticism. This became popular. There were a few... Uh, who did this, but after Christianity got adopted by the Roman Empire under Constantine, the frequency of monasticism, or monks, uh, really went up from that point on, which is the 4th century. In the first couple of centuries, we still had people who did so. And from this thinking came those who would isolate themselves from the world. And at first, it actually, the most popular destination for uh, monk was the egyptian desert and that provided the most fertile soil for the growth of monasticism it's really from the egyptian desert that monasticism really took off so <clears throat> society with its noise and its many activities was seen in the early church let's well, say in the first few centuries of the church society with its noise and its many activities was seen as a temptation and a distraction from the monastic goal. The term anchorite, uh, which actually, that was uh, the name I gave one of my fantasy football teams back years ago. Because an anchorite is actually a a cave dweller. (laughs) And I, I had learned this word, and I thought, well, that's where I live. I live in the basement of MAPS Credit Union as an anchorite, and I'm usually on my own. The term anchorite, which soon came to mean a solitary monk, uh, originally meant withdrawn or fugitive. The word monk derives from the Greek word monakos, which means solitary. For these people, the desert was attractive, not so much because of its hardship, but rather because of its inaccessibility. They were not so much after the burning sands, you know, to walk on hot coals, sort of, so to speak. But they were um, they. What they wanted was separation from the world, and therefore separation from the world's temptations. And this was done by many hundreds, thousands of people, entire, uh, you know, sects, or uh, or what do we call them? Like the um, uh, Franciscans and stuff like that. It, origin- it had come from this, and these were people who had isolated themselves from the world and treated themselves to the least amount of things for survival, and, and so it, it was popular. And, and so the, the, my question is, you know, if this was popular then, is it popular now? And it turns off, turns out <laughs> that it is uh, in some respects. But just to continue with the past, there was another famous monk. Sorry, who am I talking about? One of the first famous monks was Anthony. Uh, Anthony. These two guys, Anthony and Paul, not Paul the Apostle, uh, but uh, Anthony and Paul lived around the third century, third fourth century, I think. Uh, became famous because of Christian writers Jerome and Anath- uh, Athanasius. Athanasius. He, he's Athanasius was a wonderful writer. So is Jerome, in fact. Uh, But Jerome and Athanasius wrote of these two, Anthony and Paul, and made them quite famous. And uh, Anthony wrote, quote, monks who leave their cells or seek the company of others lose their peace like the fish out of water loses its life. So, Anthony, monks who leave their cells, C-E-L-L-S, meaning... They're a little hovel. If you leave that place, you lose your peace. Another famous monk, which was Paul, Jerome wrote a brief record of him. And uh, towards the middle of the third century, Paul, fleeing persecution, went to the desert as a young man where he found an old abandoned hiding place for counterfeiters. There he passed the rest of his life, spending his time in prayer and living on a diet that consisted almost exclusively of dates. According to Jerome, Paul lived in such conditions for almost a century, and his only visitors during that time were the beasts of the desert and the elderly monk, Anthony. Certainly the account is exaggerated, but he was praised for being isolated. I don't think it said that he talked to the animals of the wilderness, but you get <coughs> that feeling, right? This isolated monk who lives on nothing and is what? Has this certain power to live a long time. And that uh, made me think of <coughs> Obi-Wan Kenobi. <coughs> right? Uh, if you're a fan of Star Wars, right? Obi-Wan is the guy, right? He's this powerful jedi and the jedi life is a lonely life right it's a it's a monkish lonely life and this gets admired you know and and you know and and, uh and and so we think you know there are survivalists who you know want to be isolated we i I thoroughly enjoy those shows the show alone is is certainly uh, one of my favorites um but what's interesting about if you watch the show alone these people are out in the wilderness alone for weeks upon weeks uh the one who lasts the longest wins which could be a couple of months but all of them go kind of crazy being alone now some deal with it better than others but none of them deal with it really all that well and that's because we're designed to be with people god has made us social beings Uh, And so the temptation from Satan is, you know, would we rather be isolated? Is it better to be isolated? If we're going to avoid temptation, why not just take ourselves out of the world? If I'm going to avoid the temptation that people bring upon me, why don't I just avoid people? And the problem is, is that this manner of uh, isolation is... <clears throat> One in which the challenges of human contact, the challenges and real relationships with real people are challenging. They challenge you. People challenge you. Even you know if there are people who persecute you, they challenge you. If someone does something, even if they don't mean to, or they mean to, if they do something wrong against you, or hurt you, or challenge you your challenge to respond accordingly to not be bitter, not be angry. We're all sinners so we hurt each other. That in itself is a challenge. I mean, if I got to forgive people for all they do against me, why not just avoid them entirely? And that's the temptation. See if Satan can pull us out of society, then he pulls out. A witness of the light. right? Jesus has left his body, the body of believers here on earth, to witness of him. The body witnesses of the head. The head is seated at the right hand of God. We're here. And he has left it to us. What did he say to the disciples? Go to all the earth and make disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the last line of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, if Satan can get us isolated away from people, what he has done is pulled out of society one of Jesus' lights. The less lights, the less gospel, the less witness. And Satan is very successful at this. And the reason why it's successful is because our flesh actually desires it. Our flesh doesn't want to be challenged by people. Uh, so in in uh, absolute proof of this that the flesh wants to be isolated is social media. When the internet provided for us social media, why did the world jump in with both feet? The whole world has. It, it is odd to see a person either at dinner, or, like out in public, uh, in the airport, the, the supermarket even, who, doesn't, who isn't walking around looking at their phones. It, when people are at dinner with one another, it's almost odd now to see them not have their phones out rather than just talking to one another. For the same, this reason, the flesh seeks a life that has no challenge or risk. We make fake lives for ourselves on social media. Real relationships challenge you. You have to give and sacrifice in real relationships that have some level of intimacy. Any level of intimacy, you have to sacrifice at some level. We, again, are sinners that fail one another. We have to deal with being let down. We have to deal with forgiving and loving unconditionally of others. Wouldn't it be easier to just be alone? Or with a phone or a laptop? And then, you know, with the phone, I can listen when I want to, I can shut them all out if I want to. And none of them actually see me. I only reveal what I want to reveal. But in real relationships, if you're going to actually have them, you have to actually open up. You have to open up you with all your flaws and failures and you know, what, all the stuff that you've got going on as well as the good stuff. Reaching, how about reaching out to the unsaved with the gospel? It also challenges us, because for the most part, they're going to reject it. And perhaps they're going to persecute us and judge us. And we know that. We know they'll make fun of us or whatever. And to reach out with the gospel, something that the world rejects and thinks is stupid and weak, it is a challenge. Now, we do see Jesus Christ heading off alone into the wilderness to pray, to be by himself, but that was from time to time. Can you imagine if that was what he did the majority of the time? Would he even have a ministry? Right? The Gospels reveal him doing what? Traveling, going from place to place, engaging with people, dining with people, the people that the Pharisees wouldn't. By the way, the word Pharisee uh, literally means isolationist. The Pharisee would be apart from the general population in that they were unclean. In fact, the Pharisee had washing rituals that he had to obey after he went out in public and came back home. Just in case he he touched something or someone that was unclean. And it was generally people. People were unclean. We just last night watched the uh, Chosen episode where Jesus heals the woman who was hemorrhaging for 12 years. She was bleeding for 12 years. And, I, I, you know, and um, after we watched it, I went and looked it up in the Gospel. And, you know, they did just a marvelous job with it, depicting this. Your heart broke for this lady to actually see. Because in our world, we don't, see, we don't see much of this. But in the Jewish world, if you're hemorrhaging blood, you are, quote-unquote, unclean. You can't go to the temple. Uh, your, your family would reject you you could come in contact with nobody no contact it's complete isolation but when she touched Jesus and he healed her and he said to her your faith has made you well and go in peace you are no longer unclean All Right? and what does that mean your isolation is over Go be with your family. Go be with others. Be with loved ones. And Why is that? Because now I've come in contact with Christ, and this is what Satan uses, is fear. I don't want to be challenged by people. I'm afraid of it. I don't want to be rejected time and time again when I reveal the Gospel. I don't want to be persecuted. I fear it. And the flesh fears it. What does the flesh want? The flesh wants to be petted. The flesh wants to be admired. The flesh wants to be elevated. The flesh wants all to think well of it, him or her. But this is not the way of life, meaning eternal life, the life that Christ has given us. Jesus touched the woman. Well, she actually touched him touched his robe so technically you know was he uh, made unclean by her touching him she didn't touch him touched his clothes but his clothes touched him blah 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 you know but he touched lepers he touched the sinners he he was with them he ate with them he invited and encouraged them he traveled towards them he went to whom the needy the sick the sinners, the poor, the downtrodden, the brokenhearted. He reached out to them. He ministered to them. And why? Because he's the light of the world. And then he says to us, you're the light of the world. Which is in Matthew 5. We'll read in a second. So, why don't we want to reach out? And this is for this reason. What makes the primary of this, this, sorry, What makes this a prime area of temptation for the devil? And the answer is fear. In the New American Standard, 58 times in the Old Testament and New, throughout the New American Standard Bible, the phrase, do not fear, is said 58 times. 58, just like that. Do not fear, 58 times. Here's one of them, Isaiah 41.10. Do not fear, says the Lord, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Do not fear them. I love how David puts it in Psalm 51. What will mere man do to me? I will not fear him. Now we to fear the Lord, not him. I'm sorry, not the world, not those who persecute us. Do not fear, the Lord says. I'm with you. Don't be anxious because I am your God. And as Peter would write, cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. So we have this isolation with media. And uh, my cartoon here, if you're listening uh, and can't see is a psychiatrist with an emoji head. The emoji head is a smiley face. And he's saying to his patient who's on the couch, how many likes, with how many likes would you rate your life? And the reason why I like this is because um, I remember years ago as, as a high school teacher, there was a girl, there was a, a guy, a kid, a boy, in one of my chemistry classes, and a girl in another one of my chemistry classes, and she liked this boy. Now, he was you know, not one of the popular kids, so I was rooting for him. And she was a little more popular, So I, if I remember that right. And she said to me that I couldn't date him or go out with him because he didn't have enough likes on Facebook. That was her reason. In other words, he had a low amount of friends on Facebook, and for that reason, uh, she wasn't going to date him. <laughs> so there you go. There you have it. And like, right, so people are actually judging themselves based on the responses they get from others in isolation. They're in isolation. Others are in isolation, clicking away, making little emojis and likes and thumbs up and stuff like that, or thumbs down, God forbid. And, you know, that's how they're basing their lives or their worth or their value. Now, if it's not isolation we want, well, there's another thing that has been tried in the Christian world, which is commune, commune. I actually found that these, I bopped around the Internet a little bit and found out that these Christian communes, I would think there's less than there used to be. I don't know. But I did find some that were actually advertising for you, if you're a Christian, to join them. <laughs> and it, uh, they advertised that they were off-grid, self-sustaining, and they radically live for God. And I wouldn't touch that place with a 100-foot pole. Uh, so, you know, maybe the world of Christians should isolate themselves from the world. In other words, become a commune, get behind some walls, maybe a walled city, and get away from the world. But notice, uh, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Well, there you go. 1 Corinthians 5.9, you could chop it off there and say, Look, I don't talk to anybody. I isolate myself. I don't talk to anybody. And this is exactly what Satan tempts us with. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Now, we got to continue. I did not at all mean the immoral people of this world or with the covetous, or swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. So Paul says you'd have to go out of the world, which sounds like a monk. And in the context of the passage, he does not condone that. <clears throat> so when we're praying, this is one of you know, the temptation we saw uh, yesterday, which was the temptation to put ourselves back under the authority of the law. Uh, to, to go about the Christian life with as as we're trying to impress God with our works uh, from our own selves and not depending on God the Holy Spirit we saw that that is a uh, a frequently given temptation and so and this temptation to not be a witness to not reach out to to see, you know, the people around you and not care. You know, put the blinders on and please don't disturb me. I won't look at you. You don't look at me. And that kind of attitude, and rather than looking around you. Looking around you for what? To see those who need the light of Christ. Whether they believe be believers or unbelievers. See those that we would witness to. Right, those that we confess the Lord to because we're not afraid. And when we're praying the Lord's Prayer, this is one aspect. Lord, lead me on the narrow path. What is that narrow path? It is the path of the disciple who is also a light to the world. The path of the disciple who's careful to take care of his own or her own spiritual life But also careful to have that spiritual life shine out to others. And that is something that we have to be, you know, we're going to be judged for this before Christ, for the judgment seat of Christ, the works that we've done, whether they're good or bad. And one of the areas of work is, and let's see it now, go to Matthew chapter 5. One of the areas of work is to show the world Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says that Jesus is going to judge us for our works, whether they're good or bad, and he's going to reward us accordingly. And we're to know that, to know that this life counts for something in eternity. Now, in contrast to what Jesus is going to say here, what do the monasticists or the monks do? They isolated themselves from the witness of the world. See, they, took, they thought they were solving one problem. And I'm sure, for many of them, they had sincere, sincerely thought that this would work. That if I'm going to avoid the temptation of the world... And one thing I learned is, especially when, when Christianity was adopted by the Roman emperor under Constantine, so it became the official religion of Rome, and when it became the official religion of Rome, it wasn't persecuted anymore, and people saw so once you have an organization that's large that has a lot of people with the giving that is taught in the bible that we graciously give there's going to be a lot of money and there's also going to be the opportunity for power because there's so many people and there's so much money that you can have control over the people and the money and so what happened very quickly after Rome adopted Christianity as its Official religion is that people got into Christianity to rise to the top for the wrong reasons, and Christianity was no longer persecuted, so it became easier. You know, it's kind of a lot like American Christianity. That you know, we're all pretty, we- we're all very wealthy here in America compared to the rest of the world, and you know, we can. Being in the right church, or maybe the wrong church, I don't know what you call it, but being in particular churches, we can, you know, just kind of portray ourselves as being truly dedicated to the Lord when we're not. Uh, And, you know, everybody else kind of plays that same game. We don't really sacrifice. We don't really give. We don't really have this fire for the Lord in his way. And his witness, we don't have fire for that. But you know what? Nobody else in the church does either. So, you know, and we're comfortable. We have what we need and we can get by. You know, it's kind of like the Laodicean church in Revelation chapter 3. where they say, well, we don't have need of anything. You know, we don't need really anything. Um, And so... You know, we had tried, what the the monks did was try to solve one problem and they created another. first, get away from the temptation, which they did. But, of course, they bring their flesh with them, every one of them. So, they're tempted in the flesh, can't avoid that. And then, But they created another problem, which is the fact that they left the world and they didn't become witnesses of the world, of the Lord to the world. So, Jesus said, you're a light to the world. And a light should not be hidden in a basement. You are not to divorce or separate from friends to whom God has sent you to witness. So say, well, I'm going to separate from all of them. Well, who are you going to witness to? To whom does your light shine? We have to be in the world and live in God's joy and love while we prepare ourselves for the variety of tests that are coming our way. As James writes in James 1.4, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, for those trials produce in you perseverance. So we're to consider them joyfully. So look at Matthew 5.14, real popular, we've read it many times. Matthew 5.14, you are the light to the world, sorry, you are the light of the world. I always loved this. When it was first pointed out to me, I was like, man, have I, you know, you could read read this and not see the impact of that very first short sentence. You are the light of the world. And the verb you are doesn't mean you will be. It's not future. It's present. You are. He said, "He doesn't say I gave you the light. He said you are the light. He doesn't say you could be the light. You are the light. And that's his title. But again, the head is at the right hand of God while the body is witnessing of the head on earth. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So a city on a hill is prominent, especially at night when it's lit up. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. You know, and uh, If you're poor in the ancient world the oil you had to light lamps was very valuable. And so there was no way you would light a lamp and then put a basket on it. That would be an extreme waste. We leave our homes with the lights on. I I try not to because I don't want to waste electricity, but, you know, sometimes we do. (laughs) It's that you don't turn off the lights every time you leave a room. But in the ancient world, you bet they would because oil was expensive. Uh, So... Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You see, Jesus is going to judge us for our works, and here are some of the works. That we're a light to others. And this, Satan tempts us into isolation. And so we need to be aware of that. So that when we pray, Father, lead us not into temptation. This is one of the ways that we want to be led to is led to others, led to be a witness to others. And yeah, I mean all of us are somewhat afraid of it. It's true. I heard uh, it was a, it was either Francis Chan, I think it was Francis Chan that who who is a man, he's a great pastor, he's written he got he got very famous off his uh, book Crazy Love. Oh, it's a great book. Um, it's about agape love. And uh, he was—he had a conference, and all these people attended this conference, all excited to hear uh, Pastor Chan teach. He's a wonderful teacher. And uh, he said, all right, right, it's the first session. Everybody's all excited. And he said, the first thing we're going to do is we're all going to leave this hotel, and we're all going to go witness to people in the city. And you can imagine how much fear spread across that crowd. We're going to what? And and that's what they did. And I, I you know, years ago, I, I heard him telling this story and he said they were all scared to do it like all of us would be. But when they all came back, they were so glad they did it. And he was teaching them something. And, you know, that's what a pastor should do. You know, a challenge, yeah. But, you know, provide the ways in which and we can all talk about this stuff. We can write it down. We can know where it is in the Scripture. But if we're not doing it, that, all that I just said is a flat-out waste of time. Scripture is meant to be lived. Right? The light is what? Good works that other people see. And if we're not doing them, if we're not reaching out, and we justify this because of our fear, and Satan uses this, Satan uses our natural fear that comes from this weak old flesh against us. And that makes perfect sense. Why wouldn't he? And God has told us that, you know, just like I said in, in Isaiah 41, this 58 that phrase, do not fear, 58 times in the Bible from the beginning. I think it even starts in Genesis and it runs all the way to the end. Here and there. Don't fear. I'm with you. friend and then this you know the contrast i like this illustration of the guy with all his devices all alone in a padded cell but the padded cell looks like a keyboard and he's alone we're all alone we have all of these devices i have them you have them it's crazy it's amazing to think that we all got along with rotary phones back in the day In that if you weren't at home near the phone, nobody could get in touch with you. Oh, the good old days. Now, (laughs) people would say, well, you know, I called you. Why didn't you pick up? You can't say, well, I didn't know you called me. You can't even lie anymore because everybody has caller ID. Remember when that first came on the market, that was a crazy thing. That you could actually tell who called you. The old rotary phone. You couldn't tell. You just picked it up. And, uh, you know, it was, (laughs) but now, you know, we're, and yet, yet, we hide behind these devices and we find that this is safer. And sure, in fact, that's true. It's safer. Being out there with real people gets ugly. Being out there with um, with others, uh, being you know in real relationships where people can hurt you and let you down, you guys can come in and sit. You don't have to. I could I could see the shadows, <laughs> no problem. And in this in this you know isolation, this is again. Let me repeat this: that if Satan can get us too afraid to be witnesses to be in contact with people, to being open as those who confess the Lord, he has plucked a light out of the world. You're still the light of the world. You're just not not on or no one sees you. You're under a basket. Your basket is your house and your laptop. So Satan's temptation is to use fear to move, there should be a to move, to move you out of the arena of witnessing to the world as Christ's disciple and into isolation. Now, there's a common theme in the Bible that is exile. Right, So, right from the beginning, Adam and the woman, they ate the fruit. What happened? Exiled from the garden. Later on, in Genesis uh, 9 and 10, after 9, 10, 10, and 11, after the flood, they build the uh, Tower of Babel. So, in Babylon, the people build the tower. They all speak the same language, and then God does what? He confuses their language, and what do they do? They spread out from one another. They're exiled. Fast forward to Israel. Israel is exiled. First the northern kingdom, and then the southern kingdom. And the laments that are written when they're in exile, so the, the ones that we have are of the southern kingdom Judah in Babylon, uh, <clears throat> the laments are all for home. They long for home. Daniel in exile is always praying towards Jerusalem. He longs for home. They all long to be home. And yet for us, there is no home, is there? Well, I mean, there is, and we long for it. Think about that. God has given us this too. God has given us home. You know, when we were were in Hawaii for 10 days and just pure beauty and luxury and just, you know, to do anything we wanted at any time, and it was wonderful. But after a while, we all longed for home. You know, and it doesn't matter where it is or how big it is. It's home. And you get comfortable there. It's your place. But for us, all of us, you know, this, this exile, Israel's exiled, Adam and Eve exiled, and we're all exiled. We're all born into this world in sin, separate from God. We're separate from God. We're exiles. And as exiles we find this epic drama in the Bible from the beginning in Genesis when Adam and Eve were removed to the end where, for instance, Satan is exiled into the lake of fire and unbelievers are. There's this whole story of mankind being lost and then being found. And when we're found, we find a home. We're not isolated. Right, and isolation is where Satan wants us, isolated from one another. Not, you know, what there's so much in the Scripture about us being together uh, with one another. It's a word in the Scripture that's used over and over. Right? How many of the commands are about us being together? Even in the Sermon on the Mount, how do we give to one another and serve one another and share with one another and comfort one another? And encourage one another. Love one another. Hear that? One another, one another, one another. We're not to be isolated. And so, are we ready, Alan? Cool. Uh, This is more of, I'm using you as guinea pigs now today. This is more of an experiment. We're going to show a video that's four minutes long from the Bible Project that touches on this perfectly. Perfectly.
1: There's
2: something about being home, where everything's just right. We're surrounded by people we love and trust. There's a feeling of stability and safety. And while some people get to experience
3: this kind of home, many do not. Others might even be forced to leave their home and go live in a foreign land. We call this going into exile. Yeah, in exile, everything is disoriented. You're in the unknown. And in the story of the Bible, this is where the ancient Israelites found themselves. Conquered by Babylon, living in exile
2: far from their homeland. And so they had to ask themselves, how did we end up here? And is there any hope of going to?" Earth? And the whole story of the Bible is
3: designed to address those very questions. The whole story? Really? Yeah, go back to the first pages of the Bible. Where does humanity live? Okay, they live in this
2: really sweet garden, their home. And they're there on
3: one condition, that they trust and follow God's one command, and they don't. And so the consequence is banishment from the garden. Ah, they're sent into exile. Exactly. And so this story's been designed to set you up for Israel's story, how they were given the gift of the promised land and were able to stay there on one condition, that they be faithful to the terms of their covenant relationship with God.
2: Uh, They didn't, and they were sent into exile.
3: And if you still don't see the parallel between exile from the garden and exile from Israel, think about this. In Genesis, humanity's exile led up to the story about the building of what city? Oh yeah, Babylon. The same place the Israelites are sent. But that's not the end of either story. In the first Babylon, God called Abraham to leave and travel to the promised land. And that story was designed to give hope to the Israelites currently living in the later
2: Babylon. Now, eventually, they do get to leave and travel back to their promised homeland. And when they did, it wasn't home, sweet home. Oppressive empires
3: were still ruling over them, and the people kept acting in the same corrupt ways as their ancestors. And so the biblical prophets said that exile wasn't actually
2: over. How could they think they were still in exile when they're at home?
3: Yeah, this is really important. In the Hebrew scriptures, Israel's Babylonian exile became an image of something more universal. It's that feeling of alienation and longing for something more, no matter where you live.
2: Yeah, I I can relate to this. I have a great home, but it's situated in a world scarred with pain and broken relationships, death, tragedy, done by others, but also done by me.
3: And so in the Bible, exile is the human condition. We all keep repeating this pattern of human corruption leading to a Babylon that we can't escape. And it doesn't matter where you live, we are all longing for a better home.
2: Now Israel's scriptures held out hope that one day God would send a king who would rescue the world from all of the Babylon he created.
3: And after many generations pass, we meet this Israelite named Jesus of Nazareth. He wandered about with no home, announcing the great restoration, that reality of home that Israel and all humanity has been looking
2: for. Yeah, Jesus really cared about people who didn't have homes. He welcomed in the stranger. He said God's love is shown when you invite in the outcast and throw parties for people who don't have a place to belong.
3: Jesus also claimed that Israel and all humanity had lost its way that our self-centeredness drives us to create false homes based on status and power, and these inevitably exclude others. We live in an exile of our own making. But Jesus said the true way home is one of weakness, of service, and of forgiveness. And then Jesus went into exile alongside us to show us the true way home. Which is? Well, Jesus said he is the way, His life and self-giving love proved more powerful than humanity's failure. He opened up a pathway to our real home. And as Jesus' followers committed themselves to him, they discovered this new way of being human. They believed that the real return from exile had begun. And so they would call themselves sojourners or
2: wanderers. Oh, right. They would say things like, the world isn't our home and we're citizens of heaven.
3: And so Jesus' followers remain exiled as they wait for that day when Jesus returns to transform this world into a true home.
0: <clears throat> so, um, go now to Matthew 10. And Jesus us this he's teaching it to his disciples and it's in reference to fear it's the word that stands out here in this teaching that uh, Satan is always tempting us back into the old self as the video points out so well, that this dark world in which we're self-centered and people are self-centered, and we create for ourselves this isolation, these homes that really we want to keep people out. You know, we want to isolate ourselves. And you know, and as they say there, you know, what they show it with that light that's going through this way. Once it touches you, the way of Jesus Christ opens up your mind and your soul and your heart to a new way of living. And this new way of living is without fear. This new way of living has in it this love for others, even those who are unbelievers and who are your enemies. And it's His way. And He lived this way when He was here. So look at uh, Matthew ten twenty-four. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they called the head of the house Beelzebul, the devil, how much more will they malign the members of his household? So he sets this up immediately. He says, look, you're going to be like your teacher and I'm your teacher. And they have called me Beelzebul. They call me a Satan worker or Satan worshiper. How much more are they going to call you this too? In other words... What I'm this life, this path that I'm calling you to walk isn't going to be easy. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be shot down. What's the easiest thing to do when this gauntlet of things and people and circumstances are trying to prevent you from walking that path is to just not walk it. You know, isolate myself and go back to the old world. This is where Satan wants us. The old world where we live like the old world. And as Jesus said, if you're like them in the old world, they're not going to persecute you. They don't they love their own. But if you walk my path, he says, "Pick up your cross." It's going to be hard. So he says in verse 26, "Therefore, do not fear them." Right? Do not fear Let's go back to our Isaiah passage. Isaiah 41.10 Do not fear. Fifty-eight times in the Bible. Do not fear. Jesus says it here. Therefore, do not fear them. For there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Meaning, God is going to judge everything. What I tell you in darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear. Where do you hear it whispered? God the Holy Spirit is teaching you His Word. Proclaim it upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. But rather, fear Him who is able to destroy the body and soul in hell. Both soul and body in hell. Fear God, not them. And if I do, that's going to change my pattern of life. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. All right, how many times has he said it now? Three. In this short teaching, do not fear. The Father knows the birds. He knows you. He knows all that you need. Therefore, he says in verse 32, here's our boldness now. Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And certainly this this scares us. We think, you know, is this loss of salvation? Of course not. The The Word of God is very clear. We can't lose our salvation. But what you gain from this is that to confess Jesus before men has its reward. And an eternal reward to deny Him before men has its, well, it it is not good. Let's put it that way. (laughs) In a a deep theological term, not good. So confess Him. And He says, I'll confess you before My Father. Verse 34, do not think I came to bring, bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter in law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Casting your fear upon the Lord. To borrow from First Peter chapter 5. Cast your fears upon Him because He cares for you. Cast your fear upon the Lord and love Him above all else. Above your family. It doesn't say you can't love your family. It says you love Him more. Because of who He is. Nobody is like Him. And courageously. Now if you know Him, you're going to love Him. Now courageously and graciously confess Him. As His disciple. And here's the promise. You'll find your life. Now what does that mean? That is the life that God has always desired for you. You'll find it. Now here's His question to us. Do you want to find that life? Do you really want to find the life that God has always wanted for you? And if that's true, the fear's got to go. If that's true, trust And obedience has to be the banner of our lives. Trusting Him and obeying Him. And we will find it. Picking up our cross is the crucifixion of the old self. Picking up the cross is that old world, that old self. That's where Satan wants to draw me into. He's always tempting me back. Like you saw in the video, what is isolation? That's the dark world. Satan is always trying to pull us back to the old world that we've been delivered from. But in the new world, we will find the life that God has made for us, that has always desired for us. And I I don't know any of us who wouldn't want to find that. And to find it is to be his disciple and confess him. And we're all going to be tempted. We're going to be tempted every day. But we must desire to walk the narrow path, the new and living way. And if we do, we'll find the life that God has for us. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that you and you alone have provided for us the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior who came into this world, who had no home, never had a home, had nowhere to lay his head. And yet he came to give us a home. Perhaps he didn't have a home here because his home was in heaven. And He knew that. He didn't want any place on earth that would be something permanent. It's not that we can't have that. Of course, we actually need that. But for our Lord, He provided us our home through His sacrifice, through His life. And He has shown us that very life in which we have love. We reach out to others. We do not isolate ourselves, but courageously witness of You. May we find that courage, Father, and remove our fear